Thank you to everyone who is helping us with our transcripts. You're doing a great job helping us make sure they're published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out, then just email us at heyuspodcast.com. H-E-Y or H-E-J. English or Swedish, you can choose. UX Podcast Episode 245. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 194 countries from China to Taiwan. And today, we've got David Dylan Thomas. He's given presentations on the intersection of design, bias, and social justice at numerous conferences. His work combines more than 10 years of content strategy experience in entertainment, healthcare, publishing, finance and retail, with a deep understanding of bias cultivated by researching and producing over 100 episodes of his podcast, The Cognitive Bias Podcast. And now, David has released Design for Cognitive Bias through A Book Apart. Now, Per, I don't think we've actually had a full-on episode about cognitive bias before. No, it's about time because we reference biases all the time, I think. Yeah, and we've we've had episodes about dark patterns. Um we've we've had um episodes about um, persuasion. Mm. But you're right, I think we've just mentioned biases over the years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to get a deep dive now. So David, um your book, it's split up into four chapters. Uh, what is bias, user bias, stakeholder bias, and your own bias. But I think, just like you do in the book, a good place to start is, what is bias? So bias is basically a series of shortcuts your mind is taking just to get through the day. Like, you have to make something like a trillion decisions a day. Even right now, I'm making decisions about how fast to talk whether or not to look at the thing to make sure it's still recording, uh, what to do with my hands. Uh, and if I had to think carefully about every single one of those decisions, I'd never get anything done. So it's actually a good thing that your mind is mostly on autopilot, but sometimes those shortcuts lead to errors, and we call those errors biases. So, so you ha- I know if I'm skipping all, almost to the end of the book, you have this reflection <laughs> You have this reflection about, so we put on different glasses uh, during mm. the day. And the, the different glasses mean you're thinking in a different way. But we also keep forgetting that we have glasses always on whenever we come into a room. When we're about to record a podcast, when I'm about to ask a question, I mean, my glasses are on all the time. I mean, is it even possible to avoid these uh, mind shortcuts, as you call them? Uh, not even a little bit. So the, the whole glasses <laughs> thing, there's, there's an effect called the framing effect. And it's, in my opinion, one of the most dangerous biases in the world. And the reason is, uh, the, the, basic, the basic effect, just to explain it, is um, let's say you're at a supermarket and you see a sign that says beef 95% lean, and next to it a sign that says beef 5% fat. Uh, people might be drawn to the 95% lean, but it's the same thing. I've just framed it in a way where one seems more appealing. And so mm. once you understand that bias, you might think to yourself, oh, I walk into a situation decide what frame, what like what glasses I'm going to put on to view the situation, and then that will bias me one way or another. 
But the truth is far more dangerous than that. The truth is you were already wearing glasses when you walked in the room. You just didn't know it. Uh, And just imagine that. Imagine that your whole life you've been wearing these glasses and you didn't even realize it. And you take them off one day and realize the world is completely different than you thought it was. I think a lot of people are going through that right now with like systemic injustice and race and all those discussions. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a very jarring thing. But having those glasses on totally frames how you live your life. The problem is, as I was saying before about like needing those shortcuts to live, that frame is kind of a shortcut. It gives you a very easy way to understand the world. Um, And depending on the frame, it could actually be a very useful thing, but by necessity, it is limiting. It is cutting some things out. It is taking some shortcuts. It is not actually analyzing the situation as it is. Um, And so, yeah, you can't really get rid of the frame, so to speak, But what you can do is invite people who are wearing different glasses, so to speak, into the room when you're making a decision, people who have a different lived experience than you. And this is why when you start to hear that cliche that representation matters and that diversity matters, like it's not just a cliche, it really does change the uh, information you're using to make the decision, right? And the perspective. Um, So if you're inviting people to the table who look like you and act like you, your decisions are going to be the same as the decisions you've always been making. If, on the other hand, you invite people to the table who might be impacted by the outcome of that situation, right, who have a different lived experience than you, who have less power than you, uh, then I think you increase the odds of these new perspectives producing less harmful outcomes. Generally, though, I think the whole thing of perception is fascinating. Mm. I mean, oh, the whole thing about how much information we're taking in and that we're, we're use, effectively using the biases to survive. Well, you, you quite quickly get to the thing about, you know, does the world even exist? <laughs> like, oh, I sure. Mean, how does it look to other people? <laughs> how does it sound and feel? No, because, I mean, u- ultimately, it's all just frequencies and vibrations, isn't it? Mm. That, that our perception of the world is, is just what our mind has decided to project, like making the film analogy. And it's, mm. it's like just what it's decided to project on, in our heads, and, and the only thing in common with everyone is maybe that we've got shared inputs or overlapping inputs to a certain degree. But I have absolutely no idea if words sound like words do to me, to yeah. you. I have no idea if, if you look like you do to you. I just know I, what I see is what's been projected inside my head as a result of all the, you know, all the bells, whistles, frequencies of vibrations that are going on in the world outside. Yeah, and you, you very quickly, I forget if it's solipsism or sophistry, but one of those is basically the brain in a, jar, in a jar philosophy, where it's like, how do you know you're not simply a brain in a jar experiencing all these things because electrical impulses are being sent to that brain, right? Uh, mm-hmm. it's, why, it's why the Matrix is so compelling as a, as a story premise, right? Because like, yeah. I can't tell you it's not true. <laughs> you know, I can't prove it. <laughs> um, mm. but, but what I think that... What I do with that sort of unsolvable riddle is it gives me a great deal of humility because one of the things you get from studying cognitive bias is uh, a great, either, either a great deal of depression or a great deal of humility around, um, I don't really know what's going on. Um, I'm, I'm taking my best guess. That's what my brain is doing all the time. And if that's the case, um, I, need to, I, I need something to base my decisions on, right? Um, that isn't simply the inputs of the outside world. Like that should be a part of it, but ultimately I have to know that there's going to be some faultiness there. So I start to say, okay, well, what else can I bring in to make that decision more valid? And I think it's a mix of, like like I said, other people's illusions, right? (laughs) As well as just the fundamental set of values. I think this is why 
things like religion grew up or things like uh, ethics and values grew up is because we started to realize, whether we realized scientifically how faulty our information gathering and processing is, just experientially we realized, oh, I thought this was going to happen, but this happened instead. And after that happens enough time, people start to notice that they're not great at predicting the future <laughs> or they're not great at guaranteeing like positive outcomes. And so you do start to develop things like ethics, like morals, like religions that sort of say, okay, I need something other than it's ironic. I need something other than the material world to base my decisions on. Um, and it gets tricky because you don't want it to turn into, oh, I'm going to ignore the physical world. And that's where you get into like a lot of people uh, deciding not to wear masks, right? <laughs> like you don't want to go that far, <laughs> but you do need more than just um, your own experience to rely on. Uh, because if you just rely on your own experience, uh, maybe you grew up with a lot of racist inputs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So that's sort of like an answer to my first question, really. How do I avoid being biased is I have to bring in other people and compare notes and see, yeah. do they see the same thing I see? Very much so. And the thing is, like, if you look at a lot of the processes that have been uh, created to fight bias over the years, um, that is kind of versions of what they're doing. So you talk about something like red team, blue team, where I'm going to have a blue team. Let's say they're working on a product. Um, they do the research, they start to create some wireframes, but before they really commit to anything, uh, the red team comes in for one day and the red team's job is to go to war with the blue team and to look for all those hidden assumptions, hidden biases, or even potential causes of harm that the blue team missed because they fell so in love with their initial idea. Um, and that fundamentally, the idea there is that if I just rely on the blue team, they may create a good product, but it is inherently going to have all the biases the blue team has. If I bring just one other team in, I increase the odds that we're going to create something that isn't as harmful. Um, and if that red team is made up of people who don't look like the blue team, <laughs> I even increase the odds more, right? Like, I, think, I feel like that is very often the strategy we're taking when we're trying to not eliminate bias because you can't really do that, but to mitigate its, its, its impact. Yeah, that that was yeah. that example comes from chapter four of your book, doesn't it? Um, yeah, the yeah. Red team, blue team, and I I particularly like that because it's it's basically peer review, isn't it? Or kind yeah. of a, a form mean, of peer review. Absolutely, none of these ideas are new per se. Like peer review has been with us ever since we've had science, um, and science itself. Like I basically leverage the scientific method when I describe like the mindset you need when you design, which is um, okay. I think I'm right, so let me ask this question. If I'm wrong, what else might be true? Like true scientific method doesn't just do an experiment to confirm a hypothesis and say, okay, we're done. Like true scientific method says, okay, if my experiment has confirmed this hypothesis, my next move is to try to disprove it, is to say, if, if I'm wrong, what else might be true? Okay, let's run some experiments on that. And in design, we almost never do that, right? There's no part of the process where you know we're supposed to stop and say, okay, it looks like this design works. Let's try to break it now <laughs> and, and find mm -hmm. a better design by, by completely ruining the last week's work, you know? <laughs> yeah. I actually, I actually tweeted, I think it was last week, um, a call for, that, why don't we start an open hypothesis movement? Mm. Um, because I, I completely agree. I think we are we we totally lack that kind of peer review type of way of working. I mean, we're getting to that point now where there is lots of hypotheses being built, and we're you know being data driven, and we're you know even like red blue team, red team blue team um, is a great idea. But I think we lack that openness about what we're doing. 
Yeah. You know, so much gets hidden. You know, algorithms get hidden under the surface and design ideas get hidden under the surface and you know, get shown to be right, get validated, but we don't check them. We don't have the checks and balances. Yeah, and, and to a certain extent, there are economic motivations not to be open, right? To be proprietary. And like, I'm not anti-capitalist per se, but I can't say that I'm not. I don't know. But there is a version of capitalism, I'll put it that way, where um, uh, you are motivated to not share. That's one, that's one problem. You are motivated to lie, frankly, <laughs> because if someone's paying a lot for something and you know it doesn't have any real value, it's not in your best interest to look for, to, to prove yourself wrong. It's not in your best interest to say, oh, this person wants to invest $10 million in my company. What motivation could I possibly have to make sure my product is good, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. To test it and say, what motivation do I possibly have to ask myself if I'm wrong, what else might be true when someone's about to give me $10 million, right? That's, you know, so it, it, it's very easy. I'll put it this way. It's very easy when you have nothing but capitalism driving the design process to make some very bad choices. Uh, you kind of want these other elements. So if you look at something, again, going back to science, like there is definitely capitalism making science, funding science and making it work, but there are a lot of other factors as well. My wife is a pediatric neuropsychologist, and so she you know, does research, and there's something called the IRB, which is a review board that if you want to do some research, they have to sign off and say, this is valid research. Like you are taking into account all these different factors. You're making sure it's not going to be biased. And it even does look at things like equality. Like, are you looking at vulnerable populations who might be impacted at the results of this research, right? So I'm not saying this is specifically how to do it, but an example of a less biased approach might be to introduce some kind of design review, right? That says, okay, this is um, been given the stamp by this design review to say like the people who made this product did, this, did, did inclusive steps, right, to arrive at their solution. They did check themselves and challenge themselves and ask themselves, uh, you know, could they be wrong before they released this product? Whereas this other product over here, uh, we don't know how it was made, right? Like even that gets mm. you closer, I think, to um, inclusive, less harmful design than just, oh, everybody did what they want. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that, that does sound like a great idea, but can we add, can, does, would that allow us to actually avoid exploiting biases in a market economy? Uh, no. I mean, I think it would start to give you, <laughs> if, if we're going literally the IRB approach, it would give you choice to say, okay, just the same way that I can decide whether or not I'm going to you know, go to a LEED certified building, right? Or, um, or give you a tax break if you want to build a skyscraper in my city if you're not going to make it lead certified, right? That's a choice mm. I have. I can't say it has mm. to be lead certified, but I can you know, give it. Mm. So there's that element to it, which frankly at that scale is when it really makes a difference because individual consumer choice isn't really driving that versus, hey, I want to build in New York City, but I can't because my design isn't inclusive enough. Okay, that has teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, as consumers, we start to expect that you have that stamp of design you know, approval on it, then yes, it becomes an incentive for the organizations to make sure they do it because their product will sell if it doesn't have that little kind of like, you know, stamp on it. So yeah, it, it fits in with the, the market. Yeah, and for, me, and for, for me, this is really how you end your book. You're actually, you're saying that now you have the tools, now you have the choice. If you really want to mitigate harm, you can do a better job of it by the advice you're giving in your book. But if you really don't want to mitigate harm, okay, so fine, but that's still your choice. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't need to write a book about uh, how to not mitigate harm because we're doing that already. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, exactly. I, and, and honestly, to me, that like, I think it's a very positive message. I'm talking about some very disturbing things in the book, but to mm -hmm. me, it is ultimately a very positive message because, you know, 
if someone said to me, okay, Dave, we need to redo design. Um, and in order to do that, you need to completely invent ethics. You need to completely invent peer review. You need to completely invent all these tools to mitigate bias. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Versus, okay, we need to completely re redevelop design. By the way, here's how journalism has already done it. Here's how the medical industry yeah. has already done it. Here's how mm. ethics has been doing it for 2,000 years, right? Like, we have the tool. And by the way, here's how the Design Justice Network and Pro Social Design Network and all these other groups are already doing it. Then it goes from being um, an innovation challenge in terms of, like, I need to invent the wheel to a, oh, I need to convince people to use the wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And something else I appreciate that you borrow from the medical world, really, this concept of the duty of care. Yeah. Re realizing that you actually have this duty as, because you have the power to influence other people's decisions, you actually also have to take responsibility for that power. Yeah, and this is riffing on a theme that Mike Mentera talks about in his amazing book, uh, Ruined by Design, where he's really doubling down on the part, uh, the defamation professionnel part I focus on around how you define your job is critically important. And he's mm. really taking the whole book, that, his whole book, to make the argument that you cannot simply think of design as making cool shit. Like you absolutely positively need to think about like the political implications of design, the social implications of design. Like your, your job is bigger than, than you think. Um, so absolutely, I think that's, that's critical. And it, I'll be, I feel compelled to tell you that um, the duty of Caroline, while it is, ultimately traced back to the medical industry like my familiarity familiarity with mm. it comes from doctor who oh <laughs> wow so the peter capaldi years um there's a whole riff an whole theme he does around duty of care like with his companions and stuff like that um and like it really struck me and that that's the phrase that was it was P peter capaldi's voice that's excellent it was peter capaldi's voice i was hearing in my head <laughs> when i was writing that section not like Hippocrates. <laughs> right. and just to fill in for the listeners here, what Per did just then was he changed his background um, on this video conversation to the TARDIS from Doctor mm. Who. Yeah, which, which by the way, now I realize I need, to, I need to get that. I don't usually go in for video backgrounds, but I could totally get behind that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back about some of the aspects of the book, one thing that actually struck me um, was... Um, I think it's in, when you're talking about user bias, um, you asked us to think about, you know, conjure up an image of a developer. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of kind of dramatic pause there where people actually think of a developer. <laughs> and, and you, you, in the, uh, you in the book, actually, I think you wrote, what, skinny white dude? Skinny is white right? dude is the phrase, yeah. Yeah, mm. and, you're, and I'm sat here and I'm thinking, oh, crap, yeah, you know, every single Hollywood film that's ever been made it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a white, long-haired, probably slightly overweight, you know, scruffy-dressed guy sat in a leaning-back office chair in a dark room. You know, isn't it? Yeah, and, it's a stereotype. And then yeah. yeah, and that stereotype. And you think about how deeply entrenched just that one stereotype is. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, yeah and, and then just, you know, how many of these kind of like stereotypes we have all the time. Yeah, and it's it's the it's a pattern. I mean, that the the motivation for even writing the book came from um, uh, Iris Bonnet, who gave this amazing talk called "Gender Equality by Design," and the insight that she brought to it that I had never really like worked with before is this idea that a lot of racial bias, gender bias, isn't necessarily explicit. I wake up in the morning hating women or hating black people. It's I love I I I. I 
explicitly love and support black people. I voted for Obama. I voted for Hillary. But when I see a resume where the name at the top of the resume is female, I have this snap judgment that, again, I'm not even aware I'm making necessarily where I start to devalue and be much more critical of that resume than if that same resume with the exact same qualifications had a male name at the top. Because I've seen this pattern in my head that, oh, you're trying to be a web developer? Well, clearly you must be male. And if you're not, oh, you're trying to be something that my pattern, that doesn't fit my pattern. So I need to be very skeptical here. It's like the, you know, from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, it's like, um, oh, because the pattern doesn't fit, I think I might see a tiger in the tall weeds or something. So I need to be much more critical. I need to be on alert because it's bad when something doesn't fit the pattern. Um, and again, it is not necessarily that I wake up in the morning believing less of women, but my behavior ultimately is going to be harmful for women. Um, yeah. So once again, going back to duty of care, once we recognize that, we have to start asking questions like, do we need to leave the name in the resume? Like, is that actually helping anyone? And is it potentially hurting the process? Maybe we leave it out now, or maybe we don't even ask for it when, you, um, when you're uh, doing your job application. Um, mm. So I feel like that's, yeah, that's absolutely, patterns is very much what you're fighting against when you're um, trying to design, you know, against bias. Yeah. You have this excellent uh, Douglas Adams quote in the book that obviously is attuned to this. The hardest assumption to challenge is the one you don't even know you are making. And that is, I think, what scares me the most reading your book is that I, there are so many biases I don't, I'm not even aware of. So how do I fight them? How do I come to terms with them? And there, But the thing is, we have talked about parts of that is bringing in new perspectives, bringing in other yeah. opinions, bringing in more people. Uh, yeah, and to, so, the, so it's the awareness that you're creating that's the important thing. It's the awareness and then mm -hmm. the, there's, there's two things you're dealing with, right? There's awareness and then there's also power, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the most interesting mm -hmm. movements right now in design is participatory design and this idea that even before I begin my research, I am going to make a power map of everyone involved in this thing that I'm designing. And I'm going to have one axis be a level of interest or impact. So on one end, low interest, on the other end, high interest. And then I'm going to have a vertical axis around um, power, like at the top high power, at the bottom low power. And the people who fall into the, I am highly impacted by this design, but I don't have very much power, um, are the people I need to focus on the most and give power by um, actually not just you know interviewing them and saying, see you later, but interviewing them, synthesizing my mm -hmm. research, coming back and saying, hey, did I get it right? Coming back again and saying, hey, is this design right? And designing with them and then even before we launch anything saying hey before we launch this is this right like letting them decide whether this thing mm -hmm. actually gets launched rather than some ceo and that may seem unrealistic again going back to capitalism but uh in terms of a just design process that accounts for because it isn't just the bias in and of itself the bias would be fine if it didn't hurt anybody the problem is it does hurt people and almost always hurts people who traditionally have less power so it isn't even just a matter of introducing other perspectives, which I endorse, but when you're prioritizing, hey, who needs to weigh in on this? You don't just like roll a die. You say, okay, who has the least power but is going to be most impacted and impacted by this? Those are the people. If we can't get anybody else to weigh in on this, those are the people who need to weigh in on this. So it's about recognizing bias, but then also recognizing the role power plays in that bias. And that's where I start to go toward the end, but then there's, I'm sure, a whole other book 
to be written about participatory design, which, you know, call out to anybody who's doing that, like, please write a book about it. <laughs> get in touch with me. I'll get you in touch with, you know, folks who might be able to help you write a book about it. Like, I think that's the next book that needs to be written here. Hmm. Uh, I was thinking about how, oh, the, what we've discussed now with how maybe uh, the way that the, the market forces work and the way that business works um, and the way that our biases work and the way in which we unavoidably um, utilize um, biases in our design work because um, like, not everything's bad there, there are good there are good aspects to, to using um, biases in design um, you know, I think one example you gave in the book was about the, the perception of ease of use so um, you know, how oh, yeah. cognitive ease into actual ease um, where you you know if something's presented in a simple way it's perceived as simple now that is that feels like a pretty good design principle. Yeah, um, and you know if if we've got that kind of aspect to, to to biases, then you know we can't get, we can't control them. We can't get away from it. So I wonder, should we maybe be more forgiving when we realise we did shit that maybe exploited biases in a bad way? I think I think you have to. Um, it's an interesting question, right? Because I certainly. Having studied bias, I don't, I don't know if forgiving is the right word, but understanding probably around when I see people doing stupid stuff. Like when I see, for example, for, for example people voting against their best interest by you know, mm -hmm. people who are living in poverty but voting for tax breaks for the rich. Like I, I get that now in a way that I didn't before. And I don't, consider, I, don't, I don't suddenly think it's a good thing, but I do kind of understand why that's happening. Um, and the same thing with like design. I get why I forget if it was uh, Snapchat or Facebook. Like people, when people present beautification filters on photo apps that make you more white. Like mm. I'm not necessarily forgiving of that, but I kind of get how that happened, right? I kind of yeah. see the steps that led there, and they're they're very human steps. I think I'll say that. Um, I think these things are very human. I think there are definitely times when people just. I think I get less forgiving when. We're past that. You know, you've hired sociologists to yep. look at your stuff and you're still doing negative stuff. That's when I'm like, okay, yeah. you knew better. I th I think, at that point, you knew yeah, better. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, you know, listen to what you're saying and think about what I said there about forgiving. I, I, I think what I was trying to articulate there was um, forgive, forgive quick enough. So we basically, if we're open about the mistakes we've made yeah. through our work with biases, if we do that quick enough, Mm -hmm. then perhaps we should be more forgiving yeah, I, I, to allow us to kind of like keep on going forward and keep on getting better. Whereas like you say, I mean, if you've, if you've employed an entire team of like, you know, experts who are you know, working with persuasion and, and exploiting these biases, you probably are beyond forgiving. Well, you're basically, you're basically it's a different, if, I, think it's, I think you're using some different ethical calculus at that point, right? Because there's certainly ethics around the things that you do that you did or didn't know. But once you know, like that, that's where we get into duty of care, right? Is, is the, and again, this is a very big part of why I wrote the book was to just introduce that that was a thing. Because um, I don't think we teach this in design schools. I don't think people who are self-taught designers necessarily will stumble across this on their own um, to sort of write it down somewhere that this is the power of design. And it's not just to get you to buy stuff. But it is working. It is working on your subconscious. <laughs> like I can't. I can't put it any more cleanly than that. 
And when you're sticking your hand in the back of someone's head and messing around there, like, okay, like if it was brain surgery, I'd want you to get a license, right? Like I'd want you to have some kind of ethical like training before I let you go doing that to a certain extent, to a scientifically studied extent. That's kind of what you're doing when you're doing design. Like the thing you were alluding to before, uh, if something is clear, if something is easier to read, it seems more true. If something rhymes, it seems more true. It is not too many ethical chess moves from that to, oh, you'd better be really careful what you make rhyme, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So so I teach a, a course in ethics and design here in Sweden. Thank and you. And <laughs> one, one, one of the most common questions I get, and I think that is on listeners' minds right now as well, of course, is, I mean, I'm coming new into the industry. Sure, I know about these principles about designing ethically, but how do I get that buy-in from my uh, superiors from mm -hmm. my UX leads from from the managers. How do I get the time? How do I advocate for that without sounding like we we make less money by not doing the things that others would like me to do? Yeah, there's there's a, well, so the 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 section on stakeholder biases in the book mm -hmm. really tries to answer that question um, because I, ca I I can tell you having been to lots of conferences. And watch lots of people give talks. There was, and during the Q and A section, there is always, I can guarantee you, at least one person who's going to say, "Hey, what you just talked about was awesome. How do I get my boss to do it?" Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, I think that's a legit concern. Kind of going back to power, right? Um, so just, just as our users have biases and we have biases, our stakeholders have biases. Our, our, our bosses have tendencies. Our clients have tendencies. Um, and if you understand them. Not to put too fine a point on it, you can sort of manipulate these biases, <laughs> you know, to... You're uh, sticking your hand in the back of their head. Now, exactly, right? yeah. Um, <laughs> to sort of, you know, uh, get what you want, or at least to get them to consider, like fully consider what, um, what, what, what you have in mind. One thing, um, I was actually talking to uh, Christina Halverson about this the other day, um, that she brings up, that she knows works, I think is a very important thing in general, is she makes sure those people feel heard. Like it isn't necessarily about constructing a really powerful presentation or doing your research and presenting them with the research, they need to feel heard, right? Um, and that's, just, that's not just a, a boss thing, that's a people thing. If people don't feel heard, they will never change their minds. Uh, I can't guarantee they will change their minds once they've been heard, but if they haven't been heard, it's, it's almost impossible. Because uh, that's, that's what people consider first, is, is do they feel respected? Do they feel like they have dignity in this situation? Um, shutting down dignity sh shuts down everything else. So I think that's one thing as to however you are presenting your argument, make sure they feel heard. And I think a really clever way to do this, I, there's a part of the book I talk about stakeholder inception. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, um, I'll give you an example. I had a client who was convinced that their content needed to be behind a paywall. And we did our homework and we looked to see, okay, is this really moving the needle? Are people really willing to pay for this, for this content? Can they get it elsewhere, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, there was no logical reason to keep it behind a paywall. And we sort of made that argument and a few times and it became clear it was a, no, a non-starter. So finally, we said, okay, um, let's write down all the reasons you're creating that content. Let's write down all the reasons users are looking for that content. And let's just do an exercise, a brainstorming exercise where we say, okay, how might we use content to align these two goals, right? And just get out your Sharpies and your stickies and just go to work. By the end of that exercise, the client said, 
oh, what if we moved this content from behind the paywall? And we were like, that is a great idea that you had just now. I am very glad that mm. you came up with that idea, right? Mm. And that sort of combines the feeling heard with the new idea because now it's their idea. Um, and yeah. which not for nothing, they're going to feel more committed to than even if I had convinced them to use my idea. Well, it's my idea. So if the going gets rough, they can always abandon it. Mm. Exactly. I love that, but also because you allow them the time uh, to actually reflect on it enough that they actually can reach that conclusion. Yeah. So it's about li actually listening to them to allow them to reflect. Yeah, and the truth is, like, I, what I like about that approach is that it also leaves room for me being wrong, right? So if I think, oh, the obvious solution is to pull it out from behind a paywall, and I'm arriving at that because I've been given a certain set of data and I'm coming into it with a certain set of biases, okay, I might still be arriving at the wrong conclusion. However, if they come into that process and now they're being given the same data and the same sort of tools to come to a decision and they might come to a better decision, right? They might be like, well, what if we did this? And oh, I didn't even think of that. I'm, you know, I am glad you came up with that. You really did come up with that, right? Yeah. So I, any, any process that leaves room for people's true selves to you know, arrive, I think is a better one. That's beautiful. I want to end there because that's such a beautiful note to end on. Uh, allow people to actually be themselves and that you will arrive at important things. I mean, we had so much content in this short episode. Thank you so much, David. It was fantastic having you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thanks, David. Just thinking there about the, the whole idea of, of um, getting your boss to ad adopt things and power struggles and the... the an uh, idea of us being like brain surgeons and sticking our hands in the back of someone's head to control them through biases um, and what what we're saying here is that we need to um, stick our hands in the heads of our users um, in our stakeholders or bosses as well and possibly even <laughs> our colleagues it's, it sounds very weird mm. but but it made me reflect on how david had structured his book he had broken it up into those aspects that there's the users there's the stakeholders and there's ourselves as designers mm. but what this implies um and even possibly says is necessary is that we are the hub in this we are the we are the brain surgeon surgeons putting our hands in the mm. users heads or being responsible for how we put our hands in the users heads and also responsible for how we put our hands in our bosses mm. heads the example you know, example of meetings and, and making bosses or stakeholders feel like they mm. come up with the ideas we are the puppet masters right so, uh, well, but a puppet master that implies so much so much power which is scary uh, exactly yeah, but yeah. that's what we're talking about yeah. we we mm. we're saying that we mm. have mm. unavoidable power mm. because the biases themselves are unavoidable mm. and we're also saying no one else in all of this is possibly as well positioned mm. to influence how those biases are acknowledged um exploited um or mitigated yeah and i think we've always been the hub in, in a certain kind of way because we've always been the mediators we've always been the ones who we try to understand the business we try to understand users and then we talk to the developers so we're, we're communicating between all these different types of people to create something that we're not necessarily building ourselves so someone we also have to communicate to someone else how to build it so we are the hub uh, which puts us in a unique position of course then to 
uh, be puppet masters, as you call it. But it also <laughs> means that we have to, uh, because the, the way I interpret David there is that we actually have to step away from designing and do way more listening. Uh, because that is within our control, but that is also our, our responsibility, bringing in more people. And I wonder, though, mm. how much of us saying that we are the hub of all this or we are the puppet masters is our own bias about the, the, the influence of design and the power of UX. I completely agree. It's almost why we started the podcast, because we saw that bias and we thought, well, that can't be true. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That, yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, very difficult one to mm. deal with and mitigate. But, mm. um, but still, I, I, I kind of... Oh, I, I think there's a lot of. I think it's got a lot of value and a lot of. Uh, I think it's convincing. Mm. <laughs> no, but and I also appreciate what David was appreciate what David was saying about when you have that workshop with your stakeholders and your bosses, it's you're actually allowing yourself to be wrong. You're opening up for that possibility that you actually are wrong as a designer because other people's uh, versions and perspectives uh, of the truth, of course, also matter. Yes, mm -hmm. and um, one example he gives at the very end of the book mm -hmm. um, as a tool is what he calls the black mirror rule. Mm. And this was another checks and balances suggestion. Right, I've, be, I've been seeing people do workshops around black mirror uh, tech, technology or actually thinking of what could possibly go wrong. Exactly. Uh, you, you take your design solution yeah. and you get people to come up with a black mirror episode based or using you know, the possible outcomes of your mm. product um and it's a wonderful thing um again maybe we're quite bad at predicting the future but at least this is a way of um, uncovering enough unearthing um current presumptions current fears about what you're doing mm. embodying it in a in a you know made up black mirror episode exactly. i mean david he goes even further he says my assertion is that everyone working on a new technology should, by law, have to write a Black Mirror episode about it. <laughs> he did push it very hard. Um, this ties in, though, with what I mentioned about um, um, my or peer review, or he mentioned as well about peer mm. review. And, and I, I do think there's a, a lot to be said about this. And mm. I, I, I half, not half jokingly, well, I, I kind of, I suppose, push the idea of the open hypothesis movement, that we, we should be more open about what, what we're guessing and and why we think it might be good to change something and to allow us to have the chance to come in and and tell our colleagues tell our people in our branch actually you know that maybe if you do that you risk doing this or mm. that's maybe not something you should dabble with or if you do this is maybe the consequence so we can be more open about um the consequences of what we're doing i don't i think yes it clashes with um maybe Propriety thinking and how you maybe want to keep ideas to yourself because you think there's money to be made from it. But I, I think a lot of the stuff we work with in design isn't maybe unique and maybe isn't the thing, the thing to make money. Um, exactly. So we can be more open about it and maybe more, um, um, not save more lives, but um, care more. Mm. I was about to say I, I'm 100% behind that idea, but I, I, I fail to see how it could be accomplished. At the same time, now when I hear you keep talking, I'm thinking, well, all the code that people are using in their products, they're, they're copying and pasting from code online. They're using open source libraries. Even mm -hmm. all designers are looking at other websites, copying and pasting ideas. It's, it's, everything is out in the open. So it's and the medical we're, branch, we're, Pat, the medical branch, when mm -hmm. they develop new drugs, mm -hmm. 
it has to ultimately they have to be peer reviewed and tested and analyzed and checked and things. It, exactly. When it boils down to it. Yeah. It's it, you know it's mm. no secret at the mm. end. Mm. It's just a matter of being maybe who who was first or being clear mm. about original ownership if you want mm. to go along those lines. Mm. Definitely. So thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, links and notes and a full transcript for this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod playing tool of choice. That wasn't easy for you to say, was it? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I recommended listening. Um, we got a little bit of that for you as well. Um, I think I'll recommend now. I'm, I'm going to mention that. I've been working on a Rome research database for the UX podcast um, episodes, so you can quickly search and pull out things. And uh, It's insane. Uh, it's it's insane, but it's really good fun. Mm. Um, so I've pulled out from um, from the database um, episode eighty five, which is Wheels of Persuasion, um, with Bart Schultz. Um, this was actually recorded six years ago, mm. and we talk about um, psychology and a lot of biases and how to well use them um, to increase conversion and so on. Mm. Um, and I think it'd be fascinating to listen back to this interview from twenty fourteen with our 2020 years. And remember, our intros back then were quite much longer than they are today. <laughs> yeah, they can be. And remember, you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Or you can even send us an email and volunteer to help us. That's worth loads to us. Mm. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James, did you read my blog post about confirmation bias? Yeah, but it only proved what I already knew.